Hello there, Into the Music with you here on RN. I'm Gretchen Miller and we're going to step back 20 years in time to 1994 with the fourth instalment of Craig Shufton's Love in the 90s series. It's an alternative history of alternative rock, a term which causes almost as much head-scratching today as it did back then. When the word first appeared in the 80s, it stood for a kind of rock music found outside the mainstream, without major labels or the support of commercial radio. But after the popular and commercial success of alternative bands like Nirvana, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, alternative had to be redefined. For some, it meant sticking to your principles, refusing the major label deals and MTV spots no matter how much you'd like the money. But for others, alternative came to mean something like being yourself or doing whatever you want, a definition which easily allowed its adherents to become rock superstars while still calling themselves alternative. And so by the mid-90s, the stage was set for a clash between the music's underground stalwarts and its newfangled rock stars. And we'll hear from people like PJ Harvey and Kim Deal, Steve Albini and Billy Corgan, and learn how the backroom politics of the underground shaped some of the most popular songs and albums of the mid-90s. What happened when alternative music first came out was authentic. It was a reflection of what was happening in the time, and, right. it, and it had to do with authenticity. So this is the reflection of the authenticity now, or in the reflection of it. Music means time. The 1990s were. 90s, 90s. Right. An alternative history of alternative rock. This is a story about unpopular music and what happens to it when it becomes popular. Because of the whole Nirvana thing, I don't know if you've heard about that. Yeah. It's about a handful of underground or alternative bands from Britain and America in the early 90s who suddenly found themselves in places where those kind of bands were not normally supposed to be. On commercial radio, on national TV, standing on stage in concert halls and stadiums in front of thousands of people. Not a lot of people get embarrassed about all this success that they get. They go, oh, I didn't really want it. You know what I mean? Of course you wanted it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because that's what you go out for. You don't matter whether you're in a band or you're in whatever. In this interview from 1994, Liam Gallagher of the British group Oasis is referring simultaneously to Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam and Kurt Cobain of Nirvana both of whom had spent a good deal of the past 12 months complaining about how much they disliked being famous. It's an unflattering portrait and also, unfortunately, a totally inaccurate one. Because while Vedder and Cobain could be accused of being naive, neither were dishonest. Both had got into music for reasons that had nothing to do with being famous. Kurt had an ethic toward his fans that was rooted in the punk rock way of thinking. No band is special, no player royalty. And when they found, to their horror, that they'd become celebrities, they did everything within their power to make themselves unfamous without giving up the thing they love doing. It's not my fault. I've never wanted the fame involved. That's, that's a totally different story. Cobain wondered in 1992 if there might be a way to put a clause in his recording contract that would restrict the number of times radio or MTV could play his songs. You can imagine how far this idea got him. This left Nirvana with no choice but to try to make music that radio stations and MTV would not want to play. And this is what they set out to do with their third album. There's definitely going to be some more abrasive songs on the next record. You know, we're going to do something just 
totally test the limits. Really raw and abrasive to very uh, pretty and candy-ish. All the radio listeners or the MTV watchers or whoever just like really test them and shove something totally aggro in their face and you know, see if they can handle that. Since Nirvana's new goal was to alienate rather than to appeal, the radio-friendly sound of producer Butch Vig could be of no further use to them. Instead, they decided to work with Steve Albini. Hi, this is Steve Albini. Steve Albini, who uh, is actually kind of the controversial Steve Albini. Um... Who had produced two of Kurt Cobain's favourite albums, The Breeders' Pod and The Pixies' Surfer Rosa. It's just, it's just that sound that we really like. We thought that sounded so natural and real. Albini didn't really like Nirvana's music, but he did have a certain amount of sympathy for their position. He was a fiercely independent artist with a deep hatred of corporate rock and the mainstream music industry, so he really liked the idea of the biggest band in America setting out to sabotage rather than expand the market for its music. He agreed to work on the record, and as part of the pre-production process, he sent them a copy of an album he'd just produced for a British group named PJ Harvey. Well, that was a tr- tremendous experience, really, all the way around. I think she's a genius. She's entered the music scene with as much critical acclaim as anybody can remember. There you go. Magazines like Time, Rolling Stone have called their work uh, striking, exciting, dangerous. If Nirvana really wanted to scare people with their new album, they could do a lot worse than to follow the lead of Polly Jean Harvey, because people were really, really frightened of her in 1993. I must say, you know, from, from listening to your music, I kind of had an impression that you might be more outwardly angry than you are. I'm sure you get that a lot. But... Yeah, all the time. In fact, every, every person I meet practically says afterwards, oh, I'm really surprised you're such a nice person. I really thought you were going to be horrible. In this interview, Harvey goes on to blame this image problem on the British music press. Well, I have been painted as quite an angry and forbidding kind of woman. But to be fair, she had set out to scare people with her band's music. PJ Harvey's songs were arranged like horror movies, with long, suspenseful, too quiet sections, suddenly interrupted by terrifying outbursts of noise. I'll make you lick my I'm gonna twist your head off, say, till you say, don't you I want to be able to put a record on a deck and to feel it affect me physically. I want to feel it going through my legs, through my stomach, right in my head. Now, the producer you chose, Steve Albini, who uh, is actually kind of the controversial Steve Albini um, uh, because of the whole Nirvana thing. I don't know if you've heard about that. Yeah. And um, he is known for, uh, I guess, a really heavy, hard, like thick, uncommercial sound. How did you end up choosing him? Was that your choice? Um... I've never really thought of his sound as being sort of um, just uncommercial, heavy or thick. I've always thought that his sound just sounds like a band. It's He's the only person I know that can record a drum kit and it sounds like you're stood in front of a drum kit. It doesn't sound like it's gone through a recording process or that it's coming out speakers. It just You can feel the sound that he records. All I've ever wanted is for us to be recorded and to sound like we do when we're playing together in a room. And that's never happened before. 
The music industry's usual way of going about things was to take an artist like Harvey and put them together with a producer who could tidy up their sound, smooth out some of the edges to make it palatable for a wider audience. Albini was considered uncommercial precisely because he saw it as his responsibility not to do this. You know, just as a fan, I respect and admire so many bands for being individuals and for being idiosyncratic that it's my obligation to honor their idiosyncrasies. Idiosyncrasies. Forgive me. Why should it be so outrageous to hear musical art as it is instead of how the industry or the audience would like to have it delivered? Albini didn't care much for the industry or the audience, whether he was in the studio making an album with Nevada or out on tour with his own band, Shellac. We can pretty much do whatever we want well, you know, during the song. And uh, some of those sections have been getting quite indulgent lately. <laughs> and uh, I've been enjoying it. But where do you draw the line? I mean, you might be enjoying it, but what, what, what's it doing to the audience? That Really, that's not of interest to us. That's none of our business. If... if <laughs> Really, whatever their response is, it's an absolutely tertiary concern to us. We're, you know, there's a point in doing it in front of people because you want p- other people to see what you're doing, but uh, it it is almost an entirely selfish concern when it comes down to the decisions about what we're actually going to do from moment to moment. This is all part of Albini's tough guy shtick, and it needs to be taken with a grain of salt. But it does reflect his deeply held belief that music ought to be personal and uncompromised which is actually just a slightly more extreme version of a philosophy that most alternative bands embraced and espoused in the early 1990s. I always have a starting point of, of writing to, to please myself and not really aiming to, to write for anybody else. That's, that's the way I've always done it. That's what they've always did. It's sort of a menu for my thoughts, the way I think them. Why don't you play three-minute pop songs? Stick to the formula. Adapt yourself to fit some expectations. You know, we're talking about music and we're talking about individuals. And I respect and admire so many bands for being individuals. People who are willing to be ourselves. And I really, really, really want to remain myself. Not just do things like, because that's the way that it's done. And we have our own opinions and some of them are wrong and some of them are right. But we're not embarrassed to be ourselves. This is Billy Corgan, lead singer of the Smashing Pumpkins. Being yourself was a very big deal for Billy Corgan. It was his personal philosophy, his musical manifesto, and also, he believed, the secret of his band's considerable success. In 1993, the Pumpkins' second album, Siamese Dream, produced by Butch Vig, had debuted on the Billboard chart at number 10, and had sold over a million copies by the end of the year. The band had appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone and Spin, and sold out concerts wherever they went. They were, in other words, the coolest thing around. But nobody would have seen this coming back in the late 80s when the group started out. The Pumpkins were anything but welcome in their hometown of Chicago, where their style of music never quite meshed with the city's popular house, industrial, and indie punk scene. You know, the Pumpkins weren't cool enough and all that. We weren't with any of those scenes. We weren't cool like the touch-and-go bands. Maybe we weren't cool. But being outcasts or feeling somewhat outside of the, the inner core of Chicago music pushed us further away. Right from the start, Corgan considered it his job to preserve his individuality in the face of peer pressure from scenesters and people in other bands, and also from corporate manipulation, producers and managers who believed they could break artists by finessing their sound and image. We're so sick of everyone doing these extremely calculated, you know, rock moves, and this is how you do your videos, and this is how you do your albums, and this is how you are as because a band, that's and this the is what you say. And everyone's going, why don't you play three-minute pop songs? And you're going, because we don't. 
Corgan was determined that the Smashing Pumpkins should remain real, that they should be themselves in spite of what the industry or even the audience might want for them. In fact, when it came to preserving the integrity of the Smashing Pumpkins, even the Smashing Pumpkins were kind of expendable. When the Pumpkins ran into drug and relationship problems during the making of Siamese Dream late in 1992, Corgan found that they were unable to play the songs the way he wanted to hear them. His solution was to erase the guitarist and bass player's parts and play them himself. A lot of people perceive me as some kind of like evil Spengali or something that, you know, you know, I'm somehow this weird, cruel dictator. But I just have a vision, you know, and, and I found people that can share my vision with me and hopefully they'll grow to have their own vision. That's what I want for them. But um, I can't let their not having a vision stop me. With all this talk of self-expression and individuality, with his refusal to compromise his art for industry or audience, you might imagine that Billy Corgan was just the kind of artist that Steve Albini would admire. But this was not exactly the case. In fact, the year Siamese Dream was released, the producer wrote a long and carefully thought out letter to the editor of a Chicago music paper, in which he denounced the Smashing Pumpkins, along with Liz Fair and another local group, former friends of his called Urge Overkill, for being what he called pandering sluts. Because they'd sold out their talent and integrity in pursuit of airplay and major label sponsorship. He wrote off the critics who raved about them as music industry stooges, and predicted that all three bands would be completely forgotten about within 10 years. Now, this hurt Billy Corgan's feelings, but the singer was used to this kind of abuse from people like Steve Albini. He felt like he'd been dealing with this kind of thing his whole life, from the kids at school who made fun of him, to the Chicago scenesters who looked down their noses at his profoundly unfashionable band. In fact, he'd had these haters specifically in mind when he wrote the lyrics for the fierce opening song on Siamese Dream, Cherub Rock. sick of the whole indie rock bullshit community, you know, holier than thou, you know, the pumpkins weren't cool enough and all that. Maybe we weren't cool. Indie ideology or philosophy, if you like, said that it was cool to stay underground and make difficult music. But to be cool was to conform, and Corgan was resolved in all things to be himself, to do only what he believed in, which in this case happened to be playing world-class pop rock in giant venues with strings and mellotrons. For lack of a better term, I went through some kind of weird musical suicide where it was either continue to try and posture as something that I wasn't or just be myself, which is a sappy, corny rock boy who likes to write love songs and likes to write rock songs. The Pumpkins might be playing stadium rock, but they weren't doing it for the stadium. They were doing it for themselves because it was the only way they could be themselves. This, as Corgan explained a few years later, was the whole point of the Smashing Pumpkins and maybe the whole point of alternative rock. We have our own opinions and some of them are wrong and some of them are right, but we're not embarrassed to be ourselves. And rock and roll pretty much up to the 90s was all about being somebody else. We were probably one of the first bands to go 
we're just going to be ourselves and if it hurts us it hurts us but it, it's we think it's actually okay to be yourself and so there's something symbolic about that but it's pretty intense it's pretty intense because it's everyday intense Notice how here Corgan gets to paint himself as a rebel and an iconoclast because he wants to be famous and be a rock and roll star. It's a similar pose to the one taken up by Blackie O from Urge Overkill in an interview the following year. In 1992, Urge Overkill had enraged the indie rock bullshit community by signing to DGC and pursuing an aesthetic based on their reverence for 70s rock and pop dinosaurs like Cheap Trick and Neil Diamond. We're looking to be something else, you know. We're trying to find the ultimate groove, you know, and that's a that's like a lifelong obsession for us. Drinks, music. The following year, they finally scored a hit after Quentin Tarantino used their cover of Diamonds' "Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon" in his film *Pulp Fiction*. which made the Steve Albinis of the world dislike them even more. But Blackie O had no time for such people. He wanted his band to go down in history. What's important is he should shoot for and aim for greatness, you know. Mediocrity is definitely out. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be like another musician in a band who's my age. You know, I want to be like somebody before me who was, who was huge, you know. It's like, there's no slight to anybody else around me, but I'm, I'm just looking to be, like, we're looking to be something else. Now, over two decades later, arguments like this seem a little bit rhetorical. Who are these people around him that Blackie thinks might be offended by him becoming a rock legend? Well, I think the force that artists like Blackie O and Billy Corgan were pushing against was personified by people like Steve Albini, but was actually the historical legacy of punk rock. Punk rock way of thinking. No band is special, no player royalty. He like discovered punk rock. It was like a revelation. It's like, wow. Most musicians of Albini's age, born in the early or mid 60s, could tell you a version of a familiar coming of age story in which they discovered punk rock, had their musical world turned upside down, and immediately rejected all the radio friendly hard rock and metal they'd been listening to up to that point. As Mark Arm of Mudhoney did when he got a load of the Stooges. Once I heard them, I knew most of the shit that I was listening to before was crap the sweet or aerosmith or something like that you know but in the 90s some of these artists were starting to listen to these pre-punk monstrosities again with fresh ears and even admit in interviews that they kind of liked them i like heavy metal what black sabbath oh absolutely the breeders might have pulled off the ultimate hybrid of arena rock and punk noise with their 1993 album last splash you don't want black sabbath song that goes yeah, everyone knows that one. Generals gathered in their masses. Now, we did a song, but we called this the Zep section, but not the Sab section. I don't know why, but it goes.
people have commented on the fact that the, the breeders are a quirky band and they're trying to figure out why they're quirky. Is it because they're naturally quirky or is it because they can't play their instruments very well? <laughs> well, Jim's a good musician and so is Josephine. And I'm not too bad, so I guess that only leaves one person really <laughs> that we're really talking about. Singer Kim Deal's decision to have her sister Kelly play lead guitar in the band, despite the fact that she couldn't play guitar at all, was pure punk, a move all but unthinkable without the background of punk's amateur DIY philosophy. And I said to Kelly, Kelly, why don't you play the drums? You, she played drums in high school. Nirvana did it! We could be a three-piece! So anyway, Kelly goes, no. I don't want to play drums. And I said, okay, what do you want to play? I want to play lead guitar. But Kelly, you can't play guitar. I don't care. I want to play lead guitar anyway. That was pretty much how it went. I just want to get along. I just want to get along. She doesn't want to get along. I think that's apparent. But Kelly's outbursts of punky noise sat side by side with riffs and motifs lifted wholesale from the bloated corpse of dinosaur rock long-haired metal of the kind the Deal sisters used to hear when they were growing up in Dayton, Ohio. Drawing on influences from bands the likes of Black Sabbath to Bauhaus and Bowie. Bowie. Somebody before me who was, who was huge. Beatles you know, and like, Stones. The new Bowie or the new Morrissey. What do you think about people saying that it's a nostalgia band? I think in the 90s it's very hard to make music that isn't self-referential. I think probably by the time I was born, the Beatles and the Stones had probably done everything that could truly be done with rock and roll. Couldn't write any better songs than the Beatles. The only place left to go was into such emotionally kind of explosive material that it's almost hard to listen to. There was a lot of fretting in the early 90s about the supposed unoriginality of alternative rock. For Billy Corgan, this new emotional extremism was what made his generation's contribution to rock and roll original. It's like they'll say, you know, God, I, I don't know if I could ever talk about how my dad beat me or, you know, something like that, you know. And as a writer, I mean, to me, it's, uh, it's, the, only, it's the only place left to go in rock and roll. In terms of its confessional quality, its sheer emotional exhibitionism, alternative rock was way ahead of 70s stadium rock. The Sweet or Aerosmith or something like that, you know. And a million miles away from the 80s party metal it had recently replaced. Motley Crue or Poison or Guns N' Roses. Hair bands. <laughs> rock and roll pretty much up to the 90s was all about being somebody else. Living an idealized fantasy, you know, like Guns N' Roses, you know, it's like, you know, it's like that kind of over-the-top rock and roll Armageddon thing. In 1994, Pavement's Stephen Malcolmus wrote a song about what it must be like for one of those big-haired rock stars to wake up after the long party of the 1980s to a world made very different by the advent of alternative rock. In this new world, fans want rock singers to be real people with deep feelings, but the ageing rock star is unable or unwilling to make the transition. In the last verse, he reflects on the work of new groups like the Smashing Pumpkins and Stone Temple Pilots and admits that he has no idea what they're talking about. Out on tour the smashing pumpkins Nature kids I, They don't have no function I don't understand What they mean I could really give a fuck 
temple pilots, they're elegant bachelors. Foxy to me, are they foxy to you? I will agree, it deserves absolutely nothing, nothing more than me. Melvin's told journalists that the line was a throwaway. Um, yeah, we we talked about those groups in that song at the end of it for no real reason other than to uh, give some life to the end of the song, you know. <laughs> it was stopping to breathe. But when Billy Corgan heard it, he took it quite personally. It might have been written from the point of view of a character, but Corgan's own preoccupation with self-expression made it very hard for him to hear it as anything other than a record of the personal feelings of Stephen Malcolmus regarding his band. This was another slight from the whole indie rock bullshit community. And this time, Corgan was in a position to do something about it. What else can I say? Come out to Lollapalooza, it's going to be a lot of fun. We made sure that the bands this year are rocking. The Smashing Pumpkins and Pavement were both booked to play on the 1994 Lollapalooza tour. Corgan made it clear to the organisers that if Pavement played, his band would not. And since the Pumpkins were supposed to be headlining, his threat carried some weight. Or so the story went. I read that they actually did something to prevent you getting on the Lollapalooza tour because of that. I've heard that that's the case. Um, it's obviously not verified because um, there really is no truth. And, you know, there's no facts in this business anyway. It's always word of mouth. And uh, I have no idea actually what they think about it. I bet if uh, Billy and I um, were to meet man to man in a, in a pub and have a drink, we'd probably get along just fine. Sadly, this fantasy reconciliation never came to pass and Pavement did not join the Lollapalooza tour in 1994. It seems that uh, anything I've read about you guys, you just sort of have this, like, fear of success. Not a fear. Just an unwillingness <laughs> to be successful? Perhaps, um, that's true. But on the other hand, it, I think that, um... Maybe the kind of success that you um, consider success wouldn't be success to us, you This idea that Pavement was somehow allergic to success might have come from their concerts, which were legendarily shambolic and spontaneous affairs. I've seen Pavement actually like come up with songs on stage. And there was something about the records too, as brilliant as they were, that suggested a band constantly on the verge of falling apart. You know, there's five people in this band and they're all have a different idea of what's going on. And uh, sometimes that it, makes it... Sometimes it sounds that way too. <laughs> I wouldn't deny that. Nevertheless, Malcolmus insisted that, despite how it might look, the band was something more than just a walking accident. In a lot of ways, we know what we like, and and we do strive to uh, achieve something. You know, it's not like we just slop anything that we want down on tape and uh, justify it through slacker, um, you know, values or something as being worthwhile. There's some things in our records I think that are serious and stuff like that, and I think there's certain instances in our concerts that are very serious and intense in that kind of traditional way that people like to treat the um, ritual of seeing a band but we also what do you mean that element of theater which comes into it well yeah you know the kind of gothic aura that the sort of separateness you know that dates back to roman times you know but uh and pagan you try rituals. to break that down you try to break that down a bit don't you i mean yeah we do and if it sometimes seemed like pavement were denying alternative rock fans what they most wanted to hear this was Malcolmus insisted for their own good i think that in the long run in the 
you know, whatever the long run is, I think it's a benefit for both the fans of, you know, this band and music in general to have, you know, us keep on going in this sort of way, whatever we're doing. Anyway, if those moshers at Lollapalooza didn't get the kind of emotional intensity they craved from Pavement, moshers. Malkmus knew there were plenty of other bands who would be happy to provide it. So you never come across the band? No, I've never run into them. Not yet, at least. I've seen them before. They're, they're fairly young. Good, really good live, I think, you know, for the histrionic rock style. I mean, they kind of give you what you want, if that's what you want, so... This was exactly the opposite of the way that Billy Corgan liked to present himself and his band, waging a lonely war against the industry, the media, the audience, and the scene in the name of self-expression and individuality. Willing to be ourselves and willing to buck the system and not just do things like, because that's the way that it's done. But when Corgan talked about rebelling and bucking the system, he always assumed that there was something about his individuality, his need to express himself, that was threatening to the industry and to society, that he was daring to give people the truth when they would rather be entertained. Such emotionally kind of explosive material that it's almost hard to listen. If this was ever true, it certainly wasn't in 1994. The emotional authenticity was not a bitter pill for the alternative nation to swallow. It was the key to the music's success, and audiences literally couldn't get enough of the stuff, as Corgan would later learn to his horror. It's pretty intense. It's pretty intense because it's everyday intense. You know, every interview is intense, every concert is intense, and sometimes, you know, you just kind of want to just have a laugh, and it's not like that. It's pretty heavy. So you're on tour and you're constantly having to provide a product for people to ingest. Really deep material, you know? If that's what you want, so. Sometimes the music can be the enemy. There doesn't seem to be any room to be real, and it's hard to, it's hard to explain. There just doesn't seem to be any room to be real. That's Craig Shufton there with his series, Love in the 90s. More next week when we explore how alternative rockers reacted with some consternation to their new expanded audiences. And on Into the Music, I'm Gretchen Miller, and we're about to meet two of the people behind Milk Records. Melbourne musician and Big Sound alumna Courtney Barnett started the label in 2012 as a way of putting out her first EP. She's since added six more artists to the roster, including singer-songwriter Jen Cloer, who's been releasing music for the past decade. Jen's latest album, In Blood Memory, was shortlisted for the Australian Music Prize, and although Courtney hasn't yet released a full-length album, she's already picking up awards for her straight-shooting songs. Just last month, she won Best Independent Artist and Best Single at the Air Awards, and Milk Records was nominated for Best Independent Label. RN's Alice Keith recently caught up with Jen and Courtney, and has some music from the EP that started it all, Courtney Barnett's I've Got a Friend Called Emily Ferris.
kind of started off as a mysterious little logo on the back of my first CD, so I looked really professional, so I could get people to review me and the radio might take me more seriously because they thought I was on a record label. <laughs> so I, I don't think there's any really strong, consistent sound. It was more like, how about I put your music where my music is and then if people look at mine, maybe they'll look at yours. And that's kind of the whole philosophy of Milk Records and the growing community sense of the label is is that like some people have never heard of me but they know all about Jen Chloe and they've got all of her albums and they go to buy her new one and they see my name or they see the Finks or they see something else and they buy that so it's, it works every different way. It's not a traditional label in the sense that we're sitting in an office working all day to market and promote someone's new release. It's really just a, an idea of being with friends and creating music and, and that's what we are really enjoying is there's a lovely sense of coming together and doing stuff with your friends rather than kind of becoming obsessed with your own album and how it has to go and you know how many units you can shift (laughs) (laughs) Jen Cloer and Courtney Barnett run Milk Records from the front room of the home they share in the northern suburbs of Melbourne it's not what you'd normally associate with a record label necessarily but more and more artists these days are recording and releasing their own music Jen's been making music independently for more than 10 years now and here she is talking about how she started out and describing Milk Records HQ. This is is it. It's a lovely light-filled Californian bungalow, classic bungalow. Mm -hmm. There's some nice purple wisteria just out the front window draped over the uh, front terrace. I guess I didn't start out with a music career in mind. I grew up in Adelaide and my dream was to be an actor. So when I was about 18, I auditioned for NIDA and I got in, which I hadn't expected, which meant moving up to Sydney. And while I was at NIDA, a guy came over one day to our share house and he brought a guitar and he sang a song he'd written and I just thought it was the best thing ever. And I was like, I want to do that. So I went and bought a second-hand guitar and started to cut class and go into the girls' change rooms at NIDA and write my first songs. And, uh, yeah, once I left NIDA, I kind of spent a bit of time playing in a few bands and they weren't particularly what I was into, but it was good practice. And then finally decided to move to Melbourne and, and that's kind of where it all started. Broken like a deadly curse Walk up to an empty page Starting over can be good But really I was just afraid So I sat in my mother's desk Where her first class mind was laid to rest I started late, you know, most of my 20s were dedicated to listening to all sorts of music and I guess I kind of developed a sense of what spoke to me. One of the biggest influences was PJ Harvey. She was just writing really great songs, raw and emotional and powerful. I loved her and I also loved The Birthday Party, Dead Kennedys, <laughs> Black Flag, um, Stormtroopers of Death, Method of Destruction. I went into this real full-on thrash punk sort of thrash stage. 
I got into the Beatles. I loved the doors. I was like obsessed with Jim Morrison. Had a big Jim Morrison poster above my bed, you know, the one where he's like topless. Babe. He was dead, but I was convinced that somehow I was going to sing backups in the doors one day. That list was way too impeccable. My list was really, I was really cool as a teenager. I'm going to call it. What happened? I was a cool teenager. (laughs) And now it's coming out later in my 40s. a song called Mount Beauty. It's from Jen Cloer's third album, In Blood Memory, which was shortlisted for the Australian Music Prize when it came out last year. 26-year-old Courtney Barnett released her first EP in 2012 when she founded Milk Records and her debut full-length album is on its way. I started playing guitar when I was about 10. I got an older brother. He's four years older than me and we got on really well and I thought he was the coolest guy in the world. Him and his friends played guitars and swapped cassette tapes. There'd be like a Hendrix song and then a Nirvana song and then a Pantera song. And then we got a CD player and my brother told me to ask for Nirvana Nevermind for my birthday on CD. So I asked my auntie for it and she was like, do you really want this? Well, yeah, because my brother told me it was cool. We used to just like sit in our room and, and listen to the CD player on the floor and then I started learning guitar because I wanted to play the songs and um, when I started learning guitar I started writing songs I guess kind of naturally just go oh what happens if I do this and when did you move from playing and writing songs at home to actually thinking, hey, I could do this myself, do do it on stage in front of other people. That transition took a lot longer. I think all through high school, I never sang anything. I was kind of the company guitarist to all the girls that were singers. And then when I was about 18, I did some open mics in Hobart, where I was living. And I was really nervous because I was terrified to sing in front of people. I was like a comfortable guitarist, but singing was just this really vulnerable, precious, embarrassing thing. Yeah, so I did, I did open mics and, and then it kind of slowly built from there. I did more and more and, and then when I moved to Melbourne um, when I was about 20, I didn't play for ages because I, I was too scared to go out into another new town and kind of start all over again. 
And then I slowly just um, got over that and started meeting people working in bars and other musicians who tend to work in bars, I guess. <laughs> and yeah, started being invited or, well, being invited or begging people to let me play first at their gigs. And I think that kind of encouraged me to, to play some of my first gigs. I saw Magic Dirt, Darren Hanlon, Augie March, Holly Throsby, Sarah Blasco, like all this stuff. I was like, cool, these people are just Australians and they're playing music and that means I can do it too. Did you ever think before that that maybe you couldn't, that it was some other thing that belonged to people who were on the yeah. records from overseas or something? Totally. Yeah, that's totally how I felt. Proper musicians were the ones who were playing music and it just felt like it was um, a distant possibility for me to be on the stage instead. Our next guest is making her American TV debut tonight to perform the song Avant Gardener from her new release, the double EP, A Sea of Split Peas. Please welcome Courtney Barnett. This is a clip of Courtney Barnett and her band performing live on Jimmy Fallon earlier this year. Since releasing her second EP in 2013, Courtney's been getting a lot of international attention. She's performed at major music festivals in the US and UK, sold out shows all around Australia and last time I checked the official video for this song was approaching a million views, I think 800,000. Not bad for someone who drew a logo on the back of an EP that she'd recorded in her bedroom two years ago, hoping to get some local radio play. It's a great story of unexpected international success, and it's one that's becoming more common for independent Australian musicians. Here's Jen Cloer. There's always been an incredible independent music scene in Melbourne, and I guess what we're starting to see now more and more is the rest of the world starting to turn their eye to Australian shores and it's a pretty exciting time to be making music and doing it yourself and you don't feel like you're invisible and that no one's listening and you have the internet and digital technology to support you know your own endeavours and you don't have to go and you know rely on someone and I think that's the whole idea behind Milk is just you don't need permission to make music and put records out you just do it you know, and you keep doing it, and the more you do it, the more people start to hear about you, and it's that really slow, organic process that I think is exciting, which can then blow up into something all over the world overnight because people can share music so quickly now.
I'm speaking with Courtney Barnett and Jen Clower at their home in the northern suburbs of Melbourne where they run Milk Records together. Jen, you released your first album independently and it went on to get nominated for an ARIA and received national airplay. All of a sudden, as a result of that, you were playing packed out gigs around the country. At the time, did you have any expectations that that might happen? I didn't expect that album to be critically acclaimed. That said, I think having spent some time at NIDA, I had some idea of how to go about presenting work in a professional light. So even though I didn't really understand the music industry, I wasn't naively just putting it out there. You know, I knew that you had to create things to a standard. When I was starting out, I kept expecting things to happen to me. And, you know, if I messaged this band that I liked and asked if I could support them, they'd say yes, and then I'd get a record contract. And then I slowly realised that it doesn't work like that and it's just really (laughs) soul-crushing sometimes. But then if you put in the work to make things happen, then it does. You kind of build your own career. No one's going to do it for you, I guess. Yeah, I mean, look, I think what I quickly realised is that no one gives a shit, really. (laughs) No one goes, oh, look, here's another, you know, songwriter. Performer, awesome, let's make shit happen for them. You've got to create your own thing. And then if people dig it, they come to you. And I think that's the most empowering experience you can have is make your own shit up. And if it sticks, awesome. And if it doesn't, you it know, stinks then. <laughs> stinks, just separate yourself from it and run in the other direction. <clears throat> but you know, it is, I mean, even with the workshops I manage my music, I was like, I'll just go and there's no workshop like this. Can I'll you, go and start my own. Can you explain how I Manage My Music runs? Well, it, it's a day-long workshop for self-managed artists, musicians, predominantly songwriters and bands. I just saw that there was a really big hole out there in the music world where there were a lot of performers, artists, performers who were managing themselves and didn't really have anywhere to go to kind of talk about it. So it's really a forum for people to come together and talk about it and often you can be seen as though you're in competition with each other and I really wanted to kind of debunk that myth because actually my experience of the independent music world is that we are actually really like helping each other out and a lot of us are friends and it's about sharing information and experiences. When you first moved to Melbourne from Sydney after making the change from acting to music, how did you Uh, go about breaking into the industry or or making a start because it's not always that easy or even obvious what steps to take how did you go about starting to get gigs or even meeting other musicians I just went out to lots of parties I just went and watched heaps of bands I went out to heaps of parties and I just met characters in kitchens drinking whiskey and jamming and if I liked someone I'd go up and talk to them I've never gone out and put an advert up at a rehearsal studio. It's always been people that I've stumbled upon and I've already had existing friendships with. It's an interesting profession in a lot of ways because you don't really go to school to do indie rock or be a songwriter. Most musicians are very tribal and they have to kind of find their tribe and that's how you start playing music and it's about just meeting people out there doing it. So there is a point, I think, where you have to make the decision to kind of be quite vulnerable. There's always going to be some vulnerable moments. I mean, even with 
the band that I put together for In Blood Memory. I remember the first rehearsal was myself, Jen Shalakis, who I'd been playing drums with for, for 10 years, Byron Sloan on bass, who plays in Courtney's band, and Courtney on guitar. And it was just weird and awkward. I mean, it sounded good, but everyone was really quiet and polite and didn't really know each other. Like, Jen had never met Bones or Courtney properly. Mm. So there's always those sort of first awkward moments or if you collaborate with someone writing a song, you know, you're sitting there, they're going to see your first ideas, which can often be amazing and sometimes a bit rubbish. And I think if you're not willing to be vulnerable in that way, then it's pretty hard to get into the music world. And it's, I mean, it's such a strange thing to do as a profession anyway, to like sit down and write about often quite personal things and then to get up and perform it night after night to a bunch of strangers. <laughs> yeah, when you put it that way. <laughs> it's very strange. <laughs> you might have some fears of rejection and all saw a live performance of your song Numbers. Uh, you wrote it together, you were performing it together and like a lot of your solo music it's full of humour, it's self-deprecating and also quite personal. Uh, I guess getting back to that idea of being vulnerable and also getting up night after night and performing things that you've written about your own life in public, does that ever sit awkwardly with you and, and do you consider that when you're writing? It's interesting, I, I was chatting to another songwriter the other evening and um, he was telling me how he went along to see an ex-partner perform a new album and it was all about their relationship and that it absolutely gutted him, like it really had a profound impact and I think, you know, that would be hard and, and I've watched friends also, you know, go along and, and have a similar experience of uh, listening to that songwriter talking all about their past relationship and... Uh, I'm sure that would be a hard pill to swallow. And I guess, you know, there's the, the question that comes up of like, is there a line that you that you don't cross? Or is it carte blanche if you're going out with a songwriter, expect to end up in their songs, I guess. I say dance, you say dance. I say friends, you say France. You're from Adelaide, I'm from Hobart. Court has a great sense of humour and that's something that her songwriting has really taught me to lighten up. 
I'm very literal and heavy and deep and meaningful. <laughs> Not to say that Courtney isn't deep and meaningful, but there are ways of using humour to actually go deeper sometimes and not by not taking yourself too seriously, it kind of catches the listener off guard and in a lot of ways I think has more impact. Wait, <laughs> sorry, let's do that again. I love the Pickles from the Jar songs. It's a classic song regardless of whether it's about, you know, our relationship or not. And and the great thing, I mean, Court played it in Adelaide and people loved it. You know, because it's all about kind of coming from Adelaide and Hobart. And those cities don't get written about a lot. I've actually had lots of people contact me who are in... I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of couples who happen to be people from Adelaide and Hobart. They're like, we're going to play it at our wedding. We love this song. <laughs> it's just cool. I didn't really... You don't think about that, I guess, when you write. And RN's Alice Keith was talking there with Courtney Barnett and Jen Cloer from Milk Records. And next week, we talk about the future of Australian music with festival founder Jess DeCrew and Warner's exec Marty Court. And there'll be more alt rock from Craig Shufton and the Love in the 90s series. I'm Gretchen Miller. This is Into the Music on RN. See you next week. <laughs>